Welcome to DLN Extend. We choose topics covered by Destination Linux Network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation here. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek, Tux Digital, and Zebedee Boss Gaming. I'm Eric, a web technologist and Linux aficionado. And I'm Nate, a Linux fitness and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. Almost. Almost unhealthy. We're keeping them in check, though. Well, you know, I mean, it, it could it could sometimes probably tip over a little bit on the other side of the fence there. But uh... <laughs> we have someone check in on you every few days and peer through the window to make sure that, you know, you're you're doing OK. Yeah, I think <laughs> if they can get past the, the, the blinding lights at the front of my house. <laughs> so the secret of the of the lighting project has been made known. Yeah, let's keep everybody trying out. Trying to blind those. Can't see me. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nate, what have you been up to this week? Well, I, I've been uh, trying to keep myself. Well, I don't have to try and keep myself busy. I've been, keep, I've been trying to uh, flush out all of my incomplete projects that that cropped up over 2018 and 19. Yes, I know that that far back actually, really for sure. So I've been going through my uh, my started projects and, and posts on, on my website, and I've been kind of kicking them out. So one something we talked about several weeks ago: quick tiling with plasma. Do you remember remember talking about that? I do, and I know that you were excited to make the video, but it was a little challenging just to position it, get all the stuff together you wanted to, and the curse of trying to put together a, a curated video, right? Right. And I think it turned out okay. I mean, I had, I think the, the second comment on, first comment was uh, was by Mitchell, a real nice comment. And the second one was by somebody I don't know being critical of, of you know, my audio balance. And I listened to it again. I'm like, eh, I don't know if the, what this guy's talking about, but you know, maybe he's right. I should just say, uh, you know, thanks for the feedback, but I just didn't say anything at all. But anyway, so I'm, you know, kind of trying to get my uh, myself doing a little more of the video editing, getting more comfortable with that. And uh, so that's, that was one thing I really like that, like quick tiling. I use it all the time now in Plasma. It's really very handy. Like it's, it's super, super handy. It's one of those things that you, once you get used to using it, that you find indispensable. Yeah. And I had to kind of mold it for my keyboard because I, I, my primary keyboard I use doesn't have number pad. Otherwise it'd been a lot easier with something like that. And, and the way the keyboard's laid out, it got the page up and page down right above the left and right cursor keys. So I, between using that meta shift control and alt or combinations thereof, I can shift and move things around wherever I want. This is something that isn't set up out of the box, right? You had to actually, but it, it's built in. It's just not set up the way, at least the way that you wanted it to work, right? There are no shortcuts enabled out of the box. So you have to create the shortcuts that make sense for you, essentially. And I tried using some of the shortcuts from Regulith, but those didn't work for me with Plasma. This is an unfortunate thing that I find with Plasma sometimes, and I'll extend this to virtual desktops and the fact that they don't have them enabled by default. And, you know, maybe they're just trying to not overwhelm people, but there's a lot of functionality if you go into the keyboards, the, the shortcuts section of the uh, control panel, and you see all of these functions and none of them are mapped to any kind of keys. We talked about Farron on the last episode, right, and how he's focused a lot on the look and feel. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if someone else or him or someone like him would focus maybe on the usability side of things and kind of say, what are some of the out of the box experiences we'd want to give people? And ultimately, maybe like how Farron has done with this really nice intro, you know, uh, getting set up, getting started with his his distro. Maybe there's something that's sort of along those same lines with. Yeah. Hey, one of the great things about Linux is you can drive a lot of this UI with your keyboard, and here's some ways to get started. That'd be good too, like, like probably like a toggle to, to activate it, because I'm willing to bet if you had it activated and you didn't 
properly inform the user and they inadvertently hit a key combination and their screen screen starts doing what they perceive as crazy things, they probably wouldn't like that. But if you had some sort of a toggle that says, do you want to use keyboard or uh, like quick tiling features, then activate like the different things that I outlined there on the on my video that that might actually be like a good way to go to, to introduce it and, and probably someone create something a little more professional than me to, to demonstrate how to how to manipulate your desktop. I know a lot of those settings are things that you can actually either in config files or from the command line, you can set those up, you know, you can set different parameters and things. I wonder if, I, I don't know, and I, maybe you do, but those keyboard shortcuts themselves, if there would be a way to have like a template or something, I know you can save them and export them and import them. So I'm assuming this is the case where, like you're saying, maybe it's the type of thing where it's optional and you, when you say, yes, I want to try this, that it kind of writes that in place. Right, kind of um, seems like there's, there's probably ways to do that. I've never actually looked at the at the scheme file, but I, I just opened it up now. I, I, I'm looking at it and literally it's just what it is, activate window, demanding attention, control alt A. And it just it's written out, it's you can you can read it and understand it. So I'm I'm willing to bet all you have to do is just invoke those uh those little those lines into uh into the configuration file, like through like a script or something. And yeah, I don't see why that wouldn't work. Hmm. Now, when you put all this together, and I, I apologize, I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Is that something maybe you could do, I wonder, is to like export those settings and make it easy for someone else to import? Yes, you can. I exported my scheme on my computer here, and I imported it onto my uh, Linux system in the kitchen. So I can use the same, well, a lot of the same tiling shortcuts. And the keyboard's a little bit different, but um, but it's it's close enough that it's it's very easy to, to quickly tile left and right. That's what I use mostly, is just tiling left and right. So I can put like YouTube on one side, or maybe a recipe on on one side and then my recipe then gnome recipes on the other side so it's really convenient just to, to do that very quickly with the keyboard so hmm. well. linux in the kitchen you say yeah that's something else i've been finalizing actually it's something i started writing about the middle of last year i have a linux machine in my kitchen it's uh it's an all-in-one adele all-in-one that sits above the sink i've had it there about a year a little over a year now like last year november is when i installed it and it's been one of my one of the greatest productivity and entertainment enhancers for my kitchen it's not taking up any counter space and then i have a series of applications on there like uh well known recipes sync thing simple note i use k organizer but if you want to use evolution because you don't like k organizer I would totally understand. And then just a little quick guide of, you know, these are the things to install. And then also for OpenSUSE. And then I have also for Debian, since I think there's quite a few people on this, on them Debian distributions. I know I was, I was shocked. I thought, I was like, someone uses something other than Tumbleweed and Leap. And uh, so I decided I put, I put that information on there as well. That's very kind of you. For those other people, those strange people yeah. that aren't using OpenSUSE. <clears throat> the ones that like don't make sense to me. I scratch my head every time. Not really. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I just the different applications that I use to make life in the kitchen more efficient. Things like having all my recipes there. And then uh, I use Falcon over over Firefox in the kitchen because it scrolls with the finger. It's a touchscreen interface. So I want to be able to just quickly scroll. Because you know, sometimes like I might have like messy hands and rather than grab a mouse and try and manipulate that or use a trackpad that's on the keyboard, I can just take a knuckle to the screen that doesn't have any grease, you know, any, you know, any like banana ooze or something like that. And I can just kind of scroll through the... Uh, the recipe or, or scroll through whatever I need to scroll through and uh, makes it a lot easier. So that's why I use Falcon instead of Firefox. Not that I don't have a Firefox on there because, you know, sometimes you got a Netflix, you know, and that's, so it's, that's been another thing that I kind of, I want to kick out there. Hopefully it's helpful to somebody. Uh, I'm not, 
not sure how many people are crazy enough to hang a Linux machine above the uh, of their sink. Is I, I could see there there's a potential there for some uh, catastrophes. I'm I'm sure I haven't had any. And I, although I, I did, I've have had those instances when you're like spraying something down, and you did get, I did get the computer a little bit wet on the underside, but nah, it didn't. It's it's fine. It's a Dell. It'll it'll hold up. And I'll definitely take a look at it to get more information. But something you mentioned, I know that GNOME has the recipes app. I've seen it in the repo, and I I think I even installed it and looked at it briefly one time. And if I remember correctly, you can have your own recipes, but then there's also some content in there already, or maybe it's pulling from somewhere. Is there like a centralized? I think it's just local content, part of that, like the the GNOME recipes data. It's part of that, and I think it, I think it does get updated when they do when they have like different um, contributors, be you know, uh, contributing stuff for it, like the the different uh, designers of the application. That that's where the other the other bits come from. It's an interesting concept because I think that, first of all, it just sounds like a nice purpose-built app, which is is a nice thing. You know, web browser's fine, but websites are of varying quality in the UI and the experience is going to differ greatly between different sites. So having a sort of single unified way to do that is is interesting. I personally, like I was mentioning to you uh, before the we started recording, I have snippets of re- recipes. I have, you know, websites that I've favorited. I've printed things. I've got, you know, handwritten things. And all of it is just sort of in different places. And uh, so the idea of consolidating that, I don't have hundreds and thousands of recipes. These, you know, these are the 10 or 15 that I absolutely depend on for that situation where it's like, oh, I have to make something and right. have no idea what. These are the fallbacks that always, the crowd pleasers and that sort of thing. And so I could see having those in something like this would be fantastic. And th- things like you, like I, I um, as far as recipes go, there are certain, also other things too, like a brine. I don't do brines very often, but I need to store that information someplace. Or uh, even I have the ratio of like applesauce instead of eggs, because I, sometimes I have. If I go to like a, a, a friend's house that I know that they have, they have a kid that's got a uh, issue with assimilating protein, uh, I then if I make something, it'll be I'll use applesauce instead of eggs, so there's no chance of any kind of reaction. And also like you know how to make pumpkin spice. That's another one of my recipes. <laughs> you got to have that in the fall. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just nice to have all those different little handy little things that you don't do often enough. You know, that you're, it's just not going to re- and you know, I got the memory of a goldfish sometimes. So there's no way I'm going to remember all these different little things. Well, that's excellent. I look forward to, uh, to taking a look at it and, w- and I'll link to that in the notes for the episode. So this week on the DLN Community Feedback, we had a post about giving back to our community. And I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. And the post itself was by our contributor, LQ Larry, who is uh, Larry Johnson. And he brings up the point of nobody's going to get rich off of Linux, maybe necessarily. But anyway, the, the point being that there so much of this software that we use and this ecosystem we use is based on people spending their time, freely giving of their time and their expertise. I know we've talked about this a lot of times on this show, but it's really important and I'm going to keep talking about it. Anyway, so he went through discussing some of that. And then also, in addition to the open source projects, the creators behind some of the shows that he likes. And basically just saying, you know, coming into 2020, let's just be mindful of the fact that that $5 that you decide to give to someone or that patronage that you give on an ongoing basis, those things matter. And 
when enough people do it, it's meaningful. So sure, $5 doesn't sound like a lot, but if a thousand people do it or 10,000 people, or hopefully even more, if it's a popular project give, then it does become enough. It becomes something substantial. Right. And so I just thought it was a really cool topic. And, um, you know, I replied, but one of the things I want to also mention is financial contributions are wonderful if you can do it. And I think most people can, because we're not talking about a lot of money. And I understand not everybody has a lot of money. And um, and I'm not saying that you should ever feel bad about not having money to give or anything like that. But if you can, great. If you can't, something we can all do is to just say thank you. And you've heard a lot of people say that. I just wonder how many people actually take the time and think to do that. I certainly try to. I'm not perfect. And there are definitely times where I intend to and forget. But if I can, at the very least, for something that I enjoy and appreciate and see the effort behind, I will at least say thank you for doing this. It's great. I use it. I love it. And if I can can contribute financially, great. Then I'll do that as well. I, I know that you're pretty, you're very pragmatic as well. You know, you don't see a problem with people trying to earn a living. These people are professionals. You know, you don't learn how to develop software. Some people do as a hobby. A lot of people are self-taught, but ultimately people need to make money and things have to be worth the effort you put into them. For some people, that's just the recognition they get or the satisfaction they get or their own benefit from it. But I think increasingly, and especially if we want to see more adoption and better quality software, better open source software, a financial component of that makes it more attractive. And I, I, every time I see a project that's at least financially solvent and sustainable, that makes me very happy. It makes me even happier when the people that build that software, if they choose to do that as a career, can then make that into a business or an actual job for themselves to earn enough money to live off. That is success to me. Isn't that what everyone wants? This is something that you're truly passionate and driven and motivated to do and can do that and earn your living doing it. Exactly. I, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the dream right there. And, and the way I see it is, you know, when I, I, there are, there are a few projects I, I donate to, um, KD being one of them, the OBS project being another one, uh, FreeCAD, one of the developers for FreeCAD. I like to enable, I mean, they're, they're helping to enable me and the things that I have to do in my life. So why not enable or help to enable them as well? It's a, that's how I look at it. I like how Noah in his business, whenever he has a, a job or he donates a portion of whatever he earned on that job toward the applications or the, the projects that help enable him to make the money. And I think that's really awesome. And and I think if more businesses did that, that'd be huge for these developers and, and just it would be a net gain for everybody. It would be entirely self-sustaining. If you are making money off of open source software that someone else has developed and freely given you, and they're asking for donations or they are transparent about their finances and they're saying, look, this is what we make and this is what our costs are and this is what we'd like to have coming in. If you made money off of that, you should seriously consider no other reason for the selfish sake of you were able to take that and make money off of it. You certainly want to see that project survive. You definitely want them to continue to do at the very least security updates and bug fixes. So you have a huge incentive to contribute back to them. And yeah, Noah doing that, and and, and I'm sure he's not alone in that, but absolutely, you're absolutely right. If every business that used some piece of open source software and was making a profit off of it through their services, right? They're not selling the software, they're selling the service of implementing the software. Mm-hmm. 
those companies would probably be awash in financial contributions, right? And there wouldn't be even be a question about where does the money come from? Right. No, there wouldn't be. And that's, uh, I mean, I was thinking, you know, some of the, the controversy around, was it MongoDB? Well, I have an example of that as well that just came in my inbox today. As part of WordPress, I use an open source plugin called Pods. It basically just, it lets you create custom content types and then extend existing content types with more fields. And then there's a, a templating system and it's extremely powerful and it's a small team of people. And I had known that they had a, a single large benefactor and it was Automatic, which is the company that's behind WordPress. Apparently, for whatever reason, Automatic decided that they weren't going to continue to fund the project. And 90% of their income or their revenue was coming from Automatic. And very similar to the situation that Mozilla was in with Firefox. And, you know, most of Mozilla's, well, not just Firefox, but most of Mozilla's revenue coming from Google, right? And mm -hmm. you think, well, that's a precarious situation. And that happened to pods. And now they're saying, well, you know, we need people to step up and contribute because otherwise, I mean, what's going to happen? Right. Your point about all of us that use that plugin, and there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who use it. If everybody gave a couple dollars, it would be enough to sustain them. And now I'm, I'm really thinking like, what can I do to help these guys? What can I do to get the word out there? That's why part of the reason I'm mentioning it here on the podcast, and I'm going to make a couple videos about it. I'm going to try to be vocal about this because it's a very robust plugin. It's mature. The team behind it is super solid. You know, they've always done the right things. They're very responsive to bug reports. It's a horrible situation for them to be in, to have this benefactor just decide they're not going to continue. For these projects that are being backed by, you know, a single large contributor, that is such a scary position to be in. Right. And um, yeah, it is. I genuinely hope that these guys can figure this out. So I'm sure you caught on Destination Linux that Ryan's YouTube channel passed 10,000 subscribers. Wow. Hot dog. Yeah. That's a lot of eyeballs. It is. It's impressive. And you know what? He deserves it because he puts out solid content. The videos are always well-researched and he does a great job of explaining what he's putting out there. Yeah. yeah. Good for him. Congratulations, Ryan. I've been a subscriber for quite a while. I've I've actually looked at a lot of his back catalog and I really enjoy... Even his older stuff is still... It's still good. It's still relevant. Especially for a guy like me because I, everything I get old anyway. So I, you know, if I look at his three-year-old stuff, that's that should be just about getting into my wheelhouse. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're 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 catching up with his older, older right. Content. Yeah, I'm almost there, almost to his old content. But you know, it's it's actually it's been good for been great for a long time. Yeah, it's I mean it's getting better. His latest video I thought was really good on the, on the Pine Book. Yeah, he had Manjaro uh, Linux on there. He's got this hardware. He didn't just one review and done, but he starts in the hardware and then he starts to really dig into the hardware. And now he's really digging into the Pine Book hardware even more. The things you can do with it, how he's using it, how he's implementing it. I really value channels like his because ultimately when I do start looking at something, I, I like to see other people's experiences with it. When I get to the point that I am interested in a pine book or have you know reason to get one, certainly I'm going to go back and look at his videos to see, okay, what was he doing here? How did he do this? And, and he posts all of his notes and everything he does on his website. So it's, it's just a very handy resource. So many hardware channels you see are just like, here's the new thing. I'm going to look at it for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, and you're never going to see it again. Mm -hmm. And you're right. 
he's like, here's this piece of hardware I got. Here's how, what I think of it because I just got it. And then two weeks later, here's what I've been doing with it. And then a month later, here's all the other things I've been doing yeah. with it. And, yeah. you know, and, that, and that's, that's great to see that sort of trail of, of, of things that, that happen and arm software. So one of the things you mentioned was that not all the software is there, but you have to imagine that more people getting the Pine Book, that's only going to provide more feedback to those teams, to Manjara and other distro makers who are getting this feedback, getting bug reports, able to then take it further. And smartly, you and I, <laughs> when we get to that point, we'll all, they'll have already worked out a lot of that. Right. And so my experience because of people like Ryan is going to be so much better. Yep. So when he's on to moving to the, uh, the the Pine Book Pro 2 or whatever, then, you know, that's when I'll be getting the Pine Book and I'll be sliding right into, you know, 100% functional, no fighting anything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> on Destination Linux... They gave a, an update on their on their Free Geek fundraiser. So Zeb raised over $1,500 on his 24-hour stream, his uh, 22 hours of bliss and two hours of pain, I guess it was. And, uh, and so they're over halfway to their $3,000 goal. I guess some people donate like directly to Free Geek and there's some harder donations that I don't know how they've, they've done any evaluation on that or whatnot. So, I mean, the way I see it, raising $1,500 is huge. I mean, that, that's a lot of, that's a lot of laptops for a lot of, a lot of uh, people who are on the other side of the digital divide. So that's pretty fantastic. And it is tough to quantify because if people donated directly to Free Geek or are sending in hardware, I'm not exactly sure how they value all of that. But, you know, Zeb sort of single-handedly said, and this, again, on his own, no one really said, hey, Zeb, we want you to do this. He just kind of thought, well, what can I do? And he came up with the 24-hour uh, stream yeah. and let us know that he was going to do it. And we're all like, okay, <laughs> if you say so, that sounds kind of nuts, but sure, why not? Well, we're we're, we're going to tell him no. <laughs> right, right. No, Zeb, you're not allowed. No, you can't do that, Zeb. No, do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. So, so not only did he do it, but he was extremely successful. And yeah, he's already gotten Destination Linux Network well into the goal, or very close to it. Yeah. So not far. Yeah. Off. I mean, what, what can you say? I mean, Zeb's a great guy. You know, anyone who's spent any time either watching him, talking to him, he's just a great guy. And in this, again, he just. So, <laughs> he didn't need to do it. Didn't we? Didn't have anything to prove. But right, I'm not so sure about his driving skills, though. I'm I'm a little little uncertain about how well. I I don't know if I'd want to give him a semi truck to drive. Yeah, I think you'd have to be. Like, it'd be like a tugboat. You'd have to strap tires all around it or something. <laughs> something else. <laughs> yeah, he uh, today I was I watched the stream a little bit today. I don't I don't know if you saw him at all. He had someone I forget who it was, uh, but did a, a skin for his truck. Really nice. Like it, it's, it looks like, I mean, it looks really neat, like how the Zebedee boss on the side of it and uh, Destination Linux on like above the windshield and everything like from the outside. And yeah, you know, if that if that truck were real, it would have a whole lot of scratches right now. <laughs> Guardrails, caravans. You'd be some news story. An odd story out of the UK today where a man was arrested for <laughs> ramming caravans. Yeah. It literally hurts my teeth watching that, that stream sometimes. <laughs> like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other topics on Destination Linux this week was Caden Live 19.12 released. I am not 
generally a Caden Live user, but I will check out the new releases just to follow the progress. But Nate, I know that you really appreciate Caden Live, and so did you have a chance to look at the new release? In fact, I did. During that new release, uh, actually, I did my my quick tiling video on that new release. I've not had crashing issues with Caden Live in a long time. Since so people say, "Oh, Caden Live crashes," I'm you're Caden Living wrong or something. I don't know. I have not had any issues with it. But what I have noticed is the uh, the dissolve effects, the, the different like uh, implementing the different transitions and whatnot. I only use dissolve. You know, it's 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 a nice, easy, non jarring uh, effect, and the fade is a lot better now. It's it's more like a fade to trans transparent as opposed to like a fade to black appearance to mm. it. So they the transitions okay. are a lot better. It, everything just looks a lot better. Now, you're, are you talking about the rendered video or the preview that you're getting? All of the above. Okay. Everything just looks better. I've also noticed, and this is just this is just anecdotally, I've just noticed that the uh, in the preview does seem to operate faster. I'm I'm doing Caden Live on a three year old laptop, two year two years old to me, but three years since it's out of production, Adele, and it's not a particularly powerful, but it it does everything real nice. And it just, I've just noticed that it's running even nicer now. There's still like some for the, that like the titles and whatnot they put in. I think they could do some, some, there's a little work that could be done on that to make that a little bit better. But, uh, but really it, it is a marketable improvement on 1912 and I'm, I'm very happy about it. It's much more enjoyable to work with now. And so they've, they've done a good job. Not to say I'm good at video editing or I'm an authority on that, that at all. I'm, I'm just a hack and I get it to work, but, uh, yeah, that, that's how I look at it. What package are you using? Are you using the, a, a uh, like a flat pack, a snap, or app image, or w- how do you grab the latest version? Uh, uh, D. Oh, I B. forgot. I forgot. You're open, on a rolling distro. Yeah, open build service. Uh, the OpenSUSE open build service. So it generally comes down without any issues. Now, anyone listening, I swear to you, <laughs> I did not. That was not a setup question. I thought <laughs> of it as I was saying what I was saying. Hey, I'm glad you set it up. I hit that right out of the park. Open build service, baby. <laughs> yeah, that was your late Christmas present. I That's guess. right. Thanks. I'll give you an e hug. There. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, brought up on Destination Linux as well as Ask Noah, Darktable 3.0 is released. Now, I'm not a photographer type, I don't have any fancy cameras. I'm thinking of Canon because there's someone in the community that has recommended Canon over any of the others. Well, she's a professional. But Darktable is very interesting. It's a very interesting application in that it's it takes the raw data from, from a camera and it interprets that or allows you to manipulate that to be so whites or whatever, however you want to define white. It, it, they're, uh, it's a very interesting concept. Like I, like I haven't even... Like, uh, it's more than just Im- um, image manipulation. It's photo data manipulation. And... Uh, well, 3.0 is released, and there's a lot of UI improvements and some updates. Uh, Noah was talking quite a bit about it on his show, and uh, the big thing was the new UI. It's more, it's more easy to to navigate, more easy, a lot easier to use. And I can't speak on it to any authority. I've never actually run it. I think I should. And um, but we do have somebody in the community that is very knowledgeable on it, and so we'd like to get her feedback on the new Darktable 3.0. So because Nate and I really don't know what we're talking about. I mean, we look at Darktable and we say, boy, that sure looks impressive. If only I knew what it actually did. So we thought, 
there has to be someone amongst us here in Linux land that could help us understand the value of this application and why people seem to get really excited and interested when there's new releases and why there's always such good word of mouth about what a powerful application it is for photography. So Wendy Hill popped to mind and we thought, hey, Wendy, that would be a great candidate. And so I reached out to her and what do you know? She was available. So Wendy, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to talk photography. I'm glad to give you the opportunity to uh, to come on and talk about this because I'm genuinely interested, um, not so much a photographer myself, but when I look at these types of applications, I can see the depth, the, you know, the robust tool set that's there. And I just, I, it's beyond me, like I said. So, so you use Darktable, you've been using Darktable. If you had to explain to someone who didn't understand the purpose of, of Darktable, wh- what is it and what does it do? I would tell them that Darktable is an extremely powerful photo editor. So when you're taking a picture with your camera, you can usually have it come out in two different formats. You have a JPEG format, which is usually what people are sharing on the internet. And when your camera saves that image, it compresses the information. Then you can also have your camera save it in a raw format. So it's got all of the data that it captured at that time that you hit that shutter button. And inside a program like Darktable, because you have all of that raw data, you can heavily manipulate that image. So say you took a picture and it was too dark with something like Darktable, it allows you to really lighten that image. And if you were still with the JPEG part of that, while Darktable could help some, because the information is compressed, it's so much harder for that manipulation to happen. So Darktable is made for those raw image files. So I'm assuming that as a professional photographer, whenever you're taking photos, you're shooting in RAW because you have that control after the fact. Is that correct? A hundred percent of the time, even when I'm just taking pictures of my family or, you know, whatever, I don't take my camera out of RAW because that's what I prefer to now edit in. I like having all of that data and being able to just play with it later. Though when I'm working on job stuff, my goal is really to have the lighting and everything right ahead of time. But it doesn't hurt to have such an amazing back end to clean things up. So you take your pictures, you have your raw files on the storage, and then do you pull them off? Does Darktable help you pull them off? I know that you actually use a separate program for something like that. I can't remember the name of it. I believe I've heard you mention that it... Yeah, I use Rapid Photo Downloader is what I use to pull the images off. Darktable can do that. And it does a really good job of it. You can set it up so it renames things for you. But I also do video. And because Darktable is photo only, it won't rename and catalog my video stuff. So Rapid Photo Downloader is what I choose to use because then it covers both the bases. And I don't have to worry about jumping between two different programs for pulling stuff off my SD cards. That makes sense. Okay. So then the images themselves and not the videos, you would be 
bringing those into Darktable? And then how does that work? So we, we kind of talked a little bit before we started recording about the idea of a workflow and how you're pulling the files in. And I guess, I mean, I can think back to when I was shooting on actual film and did some developing of negatives and things like that. You would kind of review them and then pick which ones you were going to print. Is that this sort of like a virtual equivalent of that? Or what is it that, I, I guess, just explain like what it is from there, what you do with Darktable. Yeah, so the first thing you would do is go through them. So when you first open Darktable, you land on a section called Lighttable, and that is what this section is for. It's to go through, look at all the images you've taken. You can add bags to them to help sort them. You can add star ratings, and you can also add color tags. So depending on what you're doing, you can say, okay, I need so many images and which ones are the best ones. And then you can go ahead and rate them one to five, sort them one to five. So then you're only editing or looking at the pictures as you continue that are the best ones. And you don't have to be constantly looking at the ones that you don't want anymore. So Lighttable is great for that part of the workflow. And it's everyone's first step is what do I have? What's the best? And what can I get rid of? And you need something that's I assume pretty efficient for that because I imagine you're taking hundreds of images for any given job. I mean, maybe even hundreds is is a low number. I don't know. It depends on what's going on. If we've been a weekend camping, sometimes I can come home with thousands of pictures. (laughs) I I know my my brother's wedding that I did in August. I think I came home with some 5,000 images from his wedding. So, right? I I was a two camera job, two cameras going at, at the same time. So, yes, you can come home with tons of images that all need to be gone through before you can even start the editing process. And Lighttable has is a great platform to be able to sort through all of those. And then you're left with looking at just the ones you want to edit. Okay. You've gone through, you've tagged the ones that you think are the best images. And where do you go from there? So this is where things can be different, as every different photographer has a different workflow. So from I've picked the ones that I want, and I will pull the first image from light table into dark table. So you can either click on that top tag that says dark room, which is where you'll do all the editing, like you would if you were doing film, you would do that processing in a dark room. Okay. And then from there, that's where you're going to do like the common, you're going to adjust the contrast and brightness. and Yeah, that's where you'd, you'd go through and start working through all the different processing techniques that either clean up the image or gives it more of your style. The one thing that digital processing has given us is for photographers to have a different editing style. So different photographers have different lighting styles, how you make this look with the light that you're manipulating. I love to say that photography is painting with light. So that's one way to make your images look different. And then the other way is how you process them in post. So how much are you changing the contrast in blacks? How much sharpening are you adding? There's so many different things you can do. And if you look at the the modules that are in Darktable, there are almost endless possibilities with the way that you can tweak and clean things up. 
Is this process destructible or is it something that you can kind of step through? And I know that's something that I've heard Michael talk about in terms of graphics editing and things like that is uh, having programs that will let you sort of step back and through. What I would imagine is that you, like you said, you have your style, your set. Do you save like a, a set of transformations that you make to every image and then you just sort of apply that and then go in and tweak over top of it? Or are you doing this one by one? So let's start with the first part of that, which is, is it non-destructible? And it is non-destructible. So you can always go back to the original image. For anybody who's looking at the table while listening to this, you have a history tab on the left-hand side when you're in darkroom. And you can always go back to zero, which is your original image with absolutely no edits at any time and start over again. So your original raw image that you took is always there and can be changed in any way you want a million different times. Okay. I had to assume that that was the case, but I I just thought I would ask. Yeah, well, there's some editors that are not. So GIMP is working on becoming non-destructive and their heal tool right now you can use in a non-destructive manner. But if you do most things in GIMP, what's done is done. So you can't go back and undo that. You have to save that version of it before you make a change. And then if you want to go back, you need to go back to a previously saved file, which can be a huge pain to have all of these multiple versions saved, clogging up your storage space. So the other part of my question around the transformations, can you save your sort of default set and then you just apply them or is this a one at a time kind of thing? So you can do it one at a time, but Darktable does give you the option to select everything you've done to one image while you are in the light table part of Darktable. And then you can highlight all of the images that you want to send that set of actions to that you've done. So you also have the ability with the tab called History Stack to save things as a style. So under history stack, there's a tab called styles. And so while you're highlighted on the picture that has everything you've done to it, you want to save this one for maybe tomorrow or next week, you can create a style from that and then you can quickly apply that to any image you want. And then if you want to make changes to that style after you've applied it, you can go into darkroom and tweak it to fit that image. So you have options of batch processing, doing things one at a time, or saving things that you do regularly and apply them massively across all of your images. I assume there would be something like that because otherwise it would be maddening to do that on a one by one basis. So that's fantastic to be able to select it and then just apply that. It almost sounds like layer styles in Photoshop or something like that. But yeah, they have where you can have different things that you set to process automatically. With Photoshop, you can buy different presets. With Darktable, they actually have a a page where you can download different presets that people in the community have made and then shared for you to be able to apply to your images. Wow. Go open source. Love it. Isn't it awesome? Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. So you've done all these, you've picked your your best of the best, you've gone through, you've you know tweaked them. And now I'm assuming it, you have to export these in a way that someone can use them down stream from you, right? You're going to deliver these back to your client. You're going to give them back to your brother, whatever it is you're doing. Does Darktable facilitate export? And at this point, you're going to make it a JPEG or something like that? 
Yeah. And they do facilitate that. You'd be jumping back to the light table part of dark table and their export section is awesome. They have so many different ways that you can export it from a JPEG, PNG, TIFF, and you can choose on some of these like a TIFF file. Is it going to be compressed? What is the bit depth of the image going to come out as? So I can take an image that I have manipulated in Darktable, but I know I need to then pull it into GIMP for layers and I can save it as an uncompressed TIFF. So that way, as I'm pulling it into my second editor, I still have extremely exceptional data that I can use in that further manipulation of that image. The TIFF files that are uncompressed are quite large. On an average, they're around two to 300 megabytes. So I tell clients when they go to download them, because they're, they're looking at them and I can't see a preview of it. And I said, well, that's because it's so large, you're not going to get a, a preview of it. You're going to have to download it. <laughs> and let me <laughs> guess, they're probably like. on their phone or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing I wanted to talk about was what was relevant here is that they just released 3.0.0. When I look at the release notes, this looks like it is a very sizable update and not only an update, but several things look like they've been completely redone. The UI itself, I guess, is completely different or at least completely redone on GTK3 and looks like they've added some more tools. Does anything in this stand out to you in particular as being like, wow, I'm you know so happy to see that or I'm still playing with a lot of the new features. The first time I opened it up, I was quite surprised by the new look of Darktable in general. The, the edges used to be a lot sharper, and they changed the way it looks when you are in the Darktable mode and messing with different modules. So there's a power on button next to it instead. For anybody who's used it before and hasn't used the new version, it'll take just a minute as you're looking at things to be like, okay, that's what that is. That's how I open things before and still on the left hand side, there are arrows, you'd click on the arrow and it would open up that module and then you could manipulate it. Now, if you click on the power button, it won't open your module, it just turns it on, you need to click on the name of that module to open it up. So there's a little bit of change to workflow there. If you're used to clicking in one spot really quick and opening things up, that what I'm really excited to play with is the new tone equalizer module. And that okay. one lets you really play with the shadows and the highlights in a very fine-tuned way. So here's another thing that Darktable does that is absolutely amazing. And it's in almost every single one of the modules. It lets you pick things with either a brush, a shape that you select, or you can pick things by color or darkness and then only make changes to that part of the image. They've included that in this tone equalizer module. So you can do things like dodging and burning, which is highlighting more or darkening more on your images without having to pull things into something like GIMP, which is where I would traditionally dodge and burn. That's interesting. I wonder if they are looking to include more things to make it a more holistic tool where you maybe don't have to do that secondary editing. 
Well, and the more you can do in Darktable, the better because you are working with the original raw file and you have the the most information and the best information available for your raw program to manipulate. You've picked out a couple things. And I mean, that was I'm looking at the scroll bar on the side of the page and I'm less than a quarter of the way down. I mean, it is absolutely amazing how much is in this release. Do you participate in their community at all? I have not been in contact with their development team. I know um, there's a group on Facebook that all talks about Darktable together, but I don't Facebook. It would be fantastic to find another group that did um, photography through Darktable and, and to be able to chat that. There is one called Open Source Photography on Telegram. I'm not in there as much as I should be, but there is a community around this and they do still like to share. So on their website, on Darktable's website, darktable.org, is where you can find the different styles that you can then install into your your version of Darktable. It always impresses me that an open source project is able to deliver such a high quality piece of software. Obviously, they're serving a passionate community of professionals and enthusiasts. And I know from some of the people that I've friends and family that are into photography, it seems like one of those hobbies that you, you either are fully committed <laughs> and, and you've, you know, you've gone the extra mile with the, getting the right gear. And like you were talking about the, the lighting, sort of developing your own style and photography is a huge passion. And to have this as a resource for, for not only hobbyists, but professionals as well, it, it's just one of those victories of open source that it makes me, um, just proud to be part of the community, I guess. Not that I have anything to do with Darktable, but it is just one of those things that when someone says, well, what's open source or what's, how is this beneficial? And you say, well, look at this tool, you know, and this is just one of many that, that serve a community. So yeah. Anyway, and this uh, definitely is an amazing tool. It, I can't believe every time I go to use it, that this is a free program that is put out because to get this much manipulation from another program, say Adobe, you know, you're paying money every month to use that. And it's incredible that you can have such a powerful tool at your hips that is being worked on by people who not only care about photography, but they care about the fact that you have access to tools to make your images the best that they can be. The discussion does not end here. There's more to be had at Telegram, Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the Destination Linux Network website for information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. For more information on where you can find me, I you can go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my other regular written blatherings, podcasts, and my YouTube channels there. You can also go to the creator page on the destinationlinux.network site. How about you, Eric? Well, I'm also on the destinationlinux.network website, which is the DLN website. And under the creator section, if you go there, you'll see me, you'll see Nate, and you'll see the other creators as well. All of those creator pages, once you click into them, have our social media links. It's just the easiest way to find everywhere I am. I've got a YouTube channel and some other things going on. In addition to that, I'm pretty active on the DLN discourse forum. I love forums, and it's a great forum. There's a lot of great activity there. If you haven't been there, you really should check it out. I agree. 
I think you are absolutely spot on. There's a lot of great activity there, you know, because I've been posting some stuff there too. <laughs> well, that's true. That's absolutely true. Well, not just Nate. And what's great about it is, as a quick aside, uh, it, it's a place where a lot of people feel comfortable coming in and expressing themselves and discussing things. There was a thread about home networking, and I had some questions about some things I want to do. There's just a great variety of topics and people coming in and lots of different opinions. So it isn't just necessarily Linux or just necessarily destination Linux network stuff. It's actually the community and a lot of other great topics that are happening. So that's why I'm there. I It's really one of the only forums that I frequent because there's a lot of variety and a lot of meaningful interactions happening. So yeah, if you haven't checked it out, it's definitely worth uh, taking a look. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for joining us. The uptake and the feedback we've gotten, folks have been very kind, very supportive, and it's just genuinely uh, so satisfying to know that people are listening and that they appreciate what we're doing and enjoy it. And so for those of you listening, thank you so much. Obviously, if you are enjoying it, please feel free to share it. Let people know we're still relatively new. This is episode 10. So we've made it to double digits, which is, which is excellent. And I've enjoyed everyone more than the last. So we'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, have a great week, everyone. See you.